David Zeritsky for the Bond Experience. Welcome back. I am joined by a friend of mine who is going to be so important in this conversation. The conversation focuses on nostalgia. It's a word, but it's an important word. It's a word that I maybe tend to overuse when it comes to James Bond passion and the franchise, but I think it's important to explore it. A lot of people say, David, why do you keep bringing up nostalgia? So here's the reality. Nostalgia is this behavioral science intrinsic emotion that we all connect to. And it's one of the reasons why when we watch a Bond movie, we get this warm, gushing, great feeling over us. But nostalgia isn't just tied to James Bond. And I've in invited basically a historian of nostalgia, the only gentleman that I know that could truly go toe to toe in this conversation. Bill Koenig, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Um, I was just thinking, uh, you know, it was about a year ago that we last saw each other. That was in Toronto at that Skyfall uh, concert. And that's kind of like the last trip I got to take. <laughs> I, I kind of knew something bad was happening, but that it would last this long and all that is, but yeah, well, speaking of nostalgia, I have pretty good memories I of know. that evening. It, who knew nostalgia was going to be one year old instead of like 40 or 60 years old? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is insane. And this has become, I mean, you know this, Bill, because, you know, you're on a lot of different shows. This has become our social life is what we're doing right now, the screen yeah. time. It's crazy. But yeah. Bill, you've got to help me here because um, we're, we're going to explore a lot of different avenues. And this is this is your opportunity to flex your nostalgic okay. muscles. And people have heard you on other shows talk about Man From U.N.C.L.E., Flint, all these different things. This is, we want to basically engulf this because you quasi lived, well, not quasi lived, you did live during kind of that whole spy craze that went on, didn't you? I did, I did. Um, I would have been, you know, I actually, my first exposure to the spy craze was the man from uncle in the first season. I was six years old and somehow I managed to get hooked on it. Um, you know, and then I saw, you know, bond when I was seven. Um, yeah. And, you know, stuff on TV. Um, I mean, just a ton of stuff on TV and it's interesting too, because with the spy craze, there was some stuff I, I didn't catch right when it on first run, but I caught it later. Um, one big show of the spy craze was the wild wild west where you mix spies with cowboys but that was on friday nights and there was like a lot of competition to watch <laughs> for the tv on friday nights i actually discovered it more in detail immediately after it ended its first run oh. and then uh with i spy which is um it, it's not it was not only a popular show I would say it was a, a culturally important show because you had a white man and a black yeah. man of equal status. You know, yeah. they were partners. They weren't, you know, one was not the hero and one was not the sidekick. They were of equal. Now the sheen of that has come off. I've got to say right away, because, you know, to admit the reality, which of course, Bill Cosby's in prison and has been yeah. accused of many you know, sexual assault by many other people. Uh, beyond that case that he was convicted for. And so that's, it, it's really hard. People, it's really hard to find it. I think I you know, it's like, yeah. I think it's fine to, hard to find anything with Bill Cosby on TV these days, understandably. Um, well, and it's, it's, it's almost like that when I 
start to almost watch a Kevin Spacey movie. It's hard to yeah. separate that. And when we talk about nostalgia, nostalgia to us, it does have, I think you would agree, a very positive connotation. You know, when you're yes. getting blasted by pandemic and politics and all the stress, you want to de-stress and, and become familiar with something again. Watching I Spy may be bringing back some of that stress, not nostalgia. <clears throat> Possibly you, to do that, you have to sort of separate, you have to separate the art from the artist. And, sure. and that's easier in some cases than others. Um, yeah. And it, I, I was going to say about I Spy, you know, it was on first run, it was on like at 10 o'clock, oh, gotta be in bed. So, so I did not actually discover I Spy until I was in college, like a decade plus later. Oh, wow. And it happened to be on, um, we didn't have cable and at night we could get TV stations beyond the, you know, the, the usual area. And so there was a station in Louisville, Kentucky that was showing, uh, in fact, they were showing the wild, wild west at, at 1130 and I spy at 1230. And um, yeah. And, and, and so it was like, you know, it was summer. I didn't have to worry about classes and um, um yeah, it's um, so, so I actually discovered I Spy really like, you know, 77 or so. So um, where where does it because um, I'm thinking about the, the spy craze and I've only read things about it. I was born in 1968. So, you know, I kind of came on the tail end. But, you know, what was what was the catalyst? What kind of started it? Was it Bond that started it? Even though it sounds like you watch Man from Uncle and then Bond. But for for the for the populace, for the people that were consuming this at the time in the 60s, what was the starter gun that went off? Well, uh, Uncle was kind of the start for TV. That was in the fall of 64. It did not get off to a good start and was actually in danger of, of cancellation. But instead, it got moved to a different time slot. Uh, so it went from Tuesday nights to Monday night. And that worked. That, you know, and plus, you know, that was also when because in the States, Goldfinger didn't start till Christmas. And so I think it, Uncle got a boost just from the general enthusiasm for Goldfinger. Uh, and also it had gotten some help as college students were kind of coming home for the holiday break. <laughs> I think that helped the, the ratings as well. So it, it became, you know, it became a thing. And then it really took off in the fall of 65 because you, CBS had the Wild Wild West, uh, NBC had I Spy, and they had Get Smart. Now, Get Smart was, you know, the, the story goes is that executive at the production company said, well, let's see, James Bond's popular, Inspector Clouseau is popular. What if we combine those two concepts? Um, and it fell to uh, uh, Mel Brooks and Buck Henry to okay, actually yeah. turn this into an actual script. And, um, and funny enough, it had, it was originally developed for ABC, but ABC, the ABC executive didn't like, did not like the script because the joke or one of the, the big joke at the end, you know, Maxwell Smart's going up against uh, Mr. Big and Mr. Big turns out to be a dwarf. Um, and so, and it's like, and just the, the ABC guy hated it. And so Mel Brooks was like at one of his hangouts and, you know, some pal of his, you know, from NBC sees him and says, Mel, what's, what's the matter? Oh, they didn't like our pilot and just, you know, it's not going to get made now. 
And, uh, and the NBC guy said, well, well, let's see it. Because as it turned out, NBC had Don Adams under contract and NBC was paying him until he got a show. And so then the NBC guys look it over and said, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's. So they authorized the money for a late pilot because it was past the time pilots were normally filmed. And um, the, the script was retooled um, for Don Adams because bits like, you know, would you believe, would you believe, um, actually predated Get Smart. They were part of, you know, Don Adams' comedy routine. You could, so it was you like can, a catchphrase of his. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, if you go to YouTube, I'm trying to remember how it's, it's a clip. There was this situation comedy, the Bill Dana show. Bill Dana is Jose Menace. And he was like a bellhop at a hotel. And Don Adams was the hotel detective. And this, there's this business. Anyway, in the clip, you actually see Don Adams going, what do you believe? And it's the whole the whole shtick, you know, it was, it was settled then. I mean, this is like a year or two before it gets smart. So, so they work in, you know, would you believe and some of the Adams, you know, Don Adams routines into the script. Um, so yeah. And, and so, so yeah, 65, I'm trying to think what else mission impossible came along in 66. Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up being the longest lasting of those spy craze shows because it ran for seven seasons. So it ran into the seventies. Um, I'm trying to think, and there were like other, you know, you know, short-lived things. There was a show called Blue Light, which starred Robert Goulet, and it was a World War II spy show. It was a half-hour show. Um, originally in TV, dramas were a half-hour, which was a carryover from radio. And by the mid-sixties, the half-hour drama was kind of, you know, struggling. So like blue light is like one of those in that, you know, it's, they're still doing it, but you know, it's not the, the hour format has, had become kind of the preferred uh, format for dramas. Um, so I got to tell you something, this is, this is a crazy conversation because, and again, I'm thinking nostalgic when I was about probably six years old. So this is the early seventies. Now um, I would come home from school and both my parents work. So I would go to my grandmother's house, which is right next door to our house. And um, I would have a snack. She would make me a snack and I would immediately, of course, it's the early seventies. I would immediately start watching TV. My lineup every single day, was the Abbott and Costello show. Now, obviously these were reruns, you know, the 30 right, right. minute, you know, yeah. in front of a live audience type thing. Um, Get Smart and then Mission Impossible. Wow. That that was my lineup <laughs> before my parents walked over to the house and procured me back. And so <laughs> I, I'm here to tell you, because my first Bond movie was The Spy Who Loved Me. We saw it in a theater in Atlantic City. I, I saw Get Smart and Mission Impossible before Bond. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think that, but Get Smart to me was was kind of the foundation that I knew. And it was just, a, I, I, it was an amazing show. Well, and, and Get Smart, you know, um, Get Smart won Emmys. Don, Don Adams won at least one and maybe wow. more. Um, and Buck Henry and a guy named Leonard Stern, they won one. There's a video, um, the title of it is Barbara Bain's First Emmy. So this is the 1967 Emmy show. So this gives you an idea of what the spy craze was like. So on this video, it's highlights of the 67 Emmy show. So you see Barbara Bain of Mission Impossible uh, win for Best Dramatic Actress, beating out Diana Rigg for The Avengers. Um, and, and then 
uh, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, who were married at the time, they then present the comedy writing Emmy. And the winners were, were Buck Henry and, and uh, Leonard Stern for a two-part Get Smart. And it was, it, it's, it, it, and it was pretty funny because Buck Henry goes up and he says, you know, he, first he says the kind of standard things, you know, it's really great writing for Don, Barbara Feld and Ed Platt. And he says, and for continuing inspiration, those zanies at the CIA and FBI. And then he walks off and like Leonard Stern's still standing there. And then, you know, Stern had pretty good co comedy timing himself. He said, exactly what I was going to say. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and then again, on the same uh, uh, collection of, of uh, uh, highlights, um, Bruce Geller, the you know creator and executive producer of Mission Impossible, wins the Dramatic Writing Emmy, beating out Robert Culp for, a, for an episode of I Spy he had written. So oh this gosh. like, you know, this and, and, and you see some, you know, shots out in the crowd. So there's like a get smart table. There's an Avengers table, you know, Patrick of me was there to cheer on Diana Rigg, I guess. And uh, a mission impossible table. <laughs> so, Wait, so, was... so, so Bill, you would know this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the people that are really into man from uncle, even today um, are, are rabid. They're, they're voracious with it. And, and I include you in that. Didn't Ian Fleming have something to do with the man from uncle? Yes, he did. Um, I would like to say this isn't well known, but like I keep doing my best to, <laughs> to, to uh, uh, let people know that. Um, what happened was there was a British born American based TV producer named Norman Felton. And he had done mostly really serious shows. He had done uh, probably his most successful was Dr. Kildare, which was based on a, MGM film series in the late 30s. Um, and he had done a, a drama called The 11th Hour, which is about psychiatrists and mental health. So it's like he was kind of in the mood for something a little more, <laughs> more, a little more escapist. And he was approached about, about Ian Fleming's thrilling cities. Can you turn this into a, a series? So he gets, at this point, the book's not even been published. He receives a, a proof. And he's reading the proof. It's like, there's no series in this. It's a travelogue. But, you know, he, but a meeting's been set up with like NBC, with you know, like advertisers or at least advertising agencies. And it's like, you don't pass that up and say, no, I have no ideas. Um, so he ad-libbed a pitch, which was about a mysterious figure who's really a spy and all this. And they, they quickly cut, you know, and part of the pitch was, you see that guy over there? What if I told you he's a spy? And, you know, so that was how he got into it. And they thought, well, that's great. But if you could get Ian Fleming involved, we will put the show on and you won't even have to make a pilot. Now that was rare then, it's still rare today. Yeah. Um, and a pilot for the uninitiated is a one-off production. It's basically you make it and the network decides whether they're gonna buy it or not as a mm -hmm. series. So Norman Felton had uh, meetings for three days at the end of October of 1962 and he had trouble getting Fleming to concentrate on what they were there for. You know, they were like, the meeting was in New York, you know, was, I guess, I assume because it's, you know, halfway between LA and London. Right. And, you know, like the first couple of days, you know, Fleming's doing a lot of walking and Felton's walking with him, you know, the walking was part of his regimen to try and recover from the heart attack he'd had earlier in the year. Mm. And, um, 
So finally Felton decided he had to do something. And so he borrowed a typewriter at his hotel. He types out a bunch of ideas and he finally shows them to Fleming. And Fleming says, oh, well, some of these are good. Can I have them? No, you can't have them. They're my ideas. Um, so Fleming said, let, let me have a look at these and I'll get back to you this afternoon. So Fleming comes back and he is like handwritten ideas. Um, for you kids out there, there used to be these things called telegrams and, you, <laughs> and like you would like, you know, phone it, you know, you have a message and it'd be delivered on a little yeah. slip of paper. So anyway, uh, Fleming had written these on his ideas on 11 telegram blanks. And I've seen photocopies of them. And boy, I tell you, Ian Fleming had really hard to read handwriting anyway. But, but Felton's idea was for a character named Edgar Solo. Fleming came back with Napoleon Solo. Hmm. And supposedly, and, and there, Felton in 97 did this long interview about his career. And I've seen the segment concerning the man from Uncle. So we, we only have Felton's word on this, obviously. But Felton like quoted uh, himself as asking Fleming, well, Napoleon, why Napoleon? And that supposedly Fleming replied, well, it goes good with Solo. Um, <laughs> and and, and, the, and the, the, the telegram blanks, a lot of it is, you know, characteristics for Solo. Hmm. Uh, one idea, um, one idea uh, Fleming had was that Solo liked to cook. Uh, the phrase was he likes a coppery kitchen was Fleming's exact words. Okay. Um, anyway, anyway, so Fleming delivers his ideas, but it's very clear Fleming is never going to do the, the heavy lifting on this. So a uh, writer producer named Sam Rolfe, he worked for Norman Felton on the 11th hour. Hmm. You know, Felton turned to him and, you know, can you like, you know, work this up? And he did some pages and said, these are good. Can you do more pages? So eventually there's a, I don't know, 40 page, maybe series proposal. And what Rolf didn't know was that the title page was changed to say Ian Fleming solo, but there's very little Ian Fleming in that presentation. It's Sam Rolf oh, because, wow. because uh, Rolf expanded the organization, mm -hmm. the, the whole concept of the secret headquarters and all that is, is Rolf. And Rolf had tried, Rolf had proposed this show he called, I think, St. George and the Dragon that didn't sell. But he was like reworking some of his St. George and the Dragon ideas into this presentation. And um, I, have a, I have a digital copy of, of that presentation. And, um, you know, it's like, it's like part short story, part descriptions of, uh, of uh, characters. One idea that Fleming had was for a money penny type secretary named april dancer now this character ends up not, first at one point rolf renamed it and they end up really not having that character anyway but i'll but save the april dancer thing because i'll get to that in a minute um so you know eventually um fleming falls under pressure from uh, broccoli and saltzman they do not like him <laughs> in their view, moonlighting. Um, I mean, the way I look at it is, I mean, those original meetings with uh, Felton, 
I mean, at that point, Dr. No was out, had just come out and was only out in the UK. It didn't come out to like most markets till like early, you know, January of 63. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a different business then. Um, So, you know, I'm, I think I'm convinced that uh, Fleming was just looking to diversify, you know, his revenue stream. Um, And plus a friend of his uh, is named Eric Ambler, very successful novelist. Uh, Fleming kind of did a wink and a nod to him in the From Russia with Love novel because he's got an Eric Ambler novel with him on the flight down to Istanbul. Um, Ambler had this deal for a show called Checkmate, uh, ran from 60 to 62. It was like two dashing private detectives and they rely on help from avuncular Sebastian Cabot as a, a, a criminology professor. And um, it was billed as being created by Eric Ambler. But I've looked through the, the list. I, there is not a single script with Eric Ambler's name oh on my it. Gosh. I, think that's, I think that's the kind of deal I have, I have theorized. And of course, there's no way to know. I've theorized that's the kind of deal that, that Fleming wanted with uncle. And I've, I've, and I also suspect if Fleming had lived beyond August of 64 and had never exited the project, I suspect uncle probably would have been pretty similar to what we got. Um, except that Fleming would be getting a cut of the money. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But anyway, in June, of, anyway, but he's under pressure from broccoli and Salzman. In, I think it was June of 63, he signs away his rights for one British pound. Uh, I've got an electronic copy of that letter. Um, and, and I've also read letters, I transcribe some, I have it on one of my sites, um, where Fleming wrote to Felton, you know, kind of sort of like, sorry about that, uh, but, uh, uh, but good luck on the show. and whatnot so but yes but fleming did then fleming's other contribution to the canon if it will is that after uncle becomes a success there is a network executive and he has a wife who's a writer and she is really leaning hard on her husband you ought to have a second uncle show and it should have a woman age and and she had a great name her name was, uh, I forget, she, she would have a proper first name, but she would have the nickname Cookie, and she would be known as Cookie Fortune. And, <laughs> and Feldman right. Company, Company are resisting this because they really don't want to do it. They don't want to do another show. And like they, at one point, they counterproposed. What if we have two shows? We'll just call them uncle, and we can mix and match the agents. No, we want a woman agent. So a writer named Dean Hargrove, who had emerged as one of the main writers on, on the man from uncle was given the assignment of doing the pilot for the girl from uncle. And it airs as an episode of, of the man from uncle solo and Ilya get incapacitated. So the woman agent takes over, but then came, you know, what do they name her? Well, there was no way we are not going to call her cookie fortune. There's just, we are not right. going to do that. So, but, but Hargrove had access to the Fleming material. And he spots the name April Dancer. He said, that is better than Cookie Fortune. And so it was. So um, now the problem with the, the girl from Uncle was, you know, they really didn't believe in the concept. And I think there was also network interference. It was going to be on early in the evening. It was going to be on at like 7.30. Oh, we can't have too much violence. And 
and it's also a lot goofier and it's that man from uncle went goofy that same season as well but it's just worse on the girl from uncle and i argue that she april dancer looks bad because this is the same season that abc imports the avengers with diana rigg and it's like you know april dancer against emma peel you're gonna lose yeah (laughs) comparison well and and for me the man from uncle what i always liked about it was the kind of the tete-a-tete between the two individuals so now you have this you know uh female agent did she have a foil that she could go up against or no well she did have a a partner it wasn't you didn't have that dynamic um you had noel harrison as mark slate who was you know and, and i think they were influenced you know David McCallum was Scottish. Hey, let's get a, let's get another UK guy. So, so so they got Noel Harrison, the son of uh, son of uh, Rex Harrison, and a performer in his own right. And um, so and and you know what? And and actually, they did have a good relationship. It, it's mm. like it was it was sort of like brother brother sister kind of thing. They did not do the romantic tension thing, which you know every time you see it, like a leads with a man or woman oh will they get together like yeah they avoided that thankfully that it 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 would have been wrong um had they tried it um part of it also i mean but part of you know stephanie powers was cast um it had been uh marianne mobley in the pilot um but stephanie powers uh, was april dancer and they um Boy, the problem, one problem was that, you know, it's a goofy show and Stephanie Powers and, and Noel Harrison kind of let it get to them. And so they started like goofing around and apparently David McCallum took the sides like, you cannot do this. You, and it's like, it doesn't matter what the script is. You have to, you know, you have to act seriously. You have to take it seriously. You know, you know, even if it's like this ridiculous comedy, you cannot, you know, be laughing at it you cannot be laughing at the material you have to sell the audience and um you know my first foray onto the internet was doing the site i call the man from uncle episode guide and because i had all i had all the episodes in some form of of man i didn't have very many uh girl from uncle and um just wasn't being shown as often i would tape them when i could but you know i i I basically had a sampling so on the girl from uncle page of that side is well here's a sampling but then in 2006 there was this very early almost uh an early example of streaming by aol called into tv in numeral two tv and you know they were taking advantage of casino royale coming out so they actually put on both the man and girl from uncle uh on that site so so for the first time i could really get to see all the episodes i gotta tell you i was getting depressed oh, no. <laughs> it was, it was like bad. well it's it, some of them like the first few were okay um decent but boy getting into it boy about episode eight nine it was like oh it was like i was getting depressed because like you know the thing is to do us to do an episode guy you have to like the show if, if you know there's no point in doing an episode guy to a show you can't stand right and i was like really getting depressed like oh i gotta stop this i gotta stop doing this to myself i like skipped ahead um because dean hargrove did do one episode of the girl from uncle i said oh 
I got to skip ahead to that. So I'm hoping this is good. And it was good. It was, it was considerably better sure. than the other one. So I kind of, but I, I, but I, I still didn't finish all the episodes. Um, it wasn't until 2014 when the girl from uncle was finally available on home video and it was on uh, Warner archive, which is MOD manufactured on demand. So they only make, you know, they don't send them out to stores. They only make them as they get the orders. So uh, I, I said, I bit the bull. I said, all right, I, I, all right, gotta do this. You got the site, you gotta do it. So I find it wasn't until 2014 that I finally had reviews for, you know, year, years after I started the site that I had all review, all the reviews for the girl from uncle. So now were you, were you of an age when you're watching the man from uncle in the sixties that you were conscious or even a consumer of merchandise? Like, did they have oh, man toys. from uncle merchandise? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had a toy gun, the uncle special. Oh, did you have it? it? Yeah. I got it. Got it for Christmas yes. one year. And unfortunately, it got destroyed. It's <laughs> the normal wear and tear of kids. Like, you know, if you knew, but, you know, it's like, ah, you know, you kind of not, you know, wistfully thinking, oh, I wish mom and dad like got one, one to squirrel away <laughs> and one for play. <laughs> so, I mean, but they show up on eBay and they show up ton of, ton of money. I mean, they're, they have some big asking prices. They're hard to get, but yeah. Yeah. But they, so they had, did they have like the little pen, like the, the communicator pen and things like that? Or? Boy, not that I remember, but it's funny because as an adult, well into adulthood, I ended up buying a, a replica. Nice. <laughs> I, I do have a replica of the pen. Um, nice. You know, it actually, you know. Does it? Do this and yeah, you know, yeah, put yeah, yeah. this in, it's a microphone, pull this out. It's supposed to be the antenna. Yeah, it's. I, I, I don't touch it very often. I don't want it to be. And I have a replica of the pistol, not the whole right. gun with the attachments. And it's, 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 it's made out of some kind of resin. There's no moving parts. You can't even pull the trigger. It's oh, just, wow. you know, but I do have a replica of the, of the, of the pistol. Do you, so, do you, how often do you, I mean, even today, how often do you watch an uncle episode? Is it just occasionally? Is it more bond? Um, you know what what happens is i go through like sporadic binges um mm. so i might go watch submission impossible and then you know kind of then i could swear after that after that it just scratched i kind of put it to a side oh i'll watch some hawaii 5 and like watch that for a while and then you know, put it to the side so it it it, it really comes and goes um it's 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 i don't because See, I think to be a collector, I think you really have to obsess over one thing. I just, you just can't, you can't yes. do multiple ones because it's both mental energy and your pocketbook. Yeah, <laughs> You'll go is. broke if you like try and do a half dozen. It gets yeah, cluttered collect. too. It's not very yeah. focused. And well, I, I have a big question. So I wrote down a couple of questions here because uh, these were, these are ones that I would want to know, but it seemed to me that the TV expansion explosion however you're describing it that the the movie genre of that time was heavily mining from it so they would look at yes. avengers and say i want this they would look at you know the saint and say i want him uh, you know talk to me about that whole inertia well <clears throat> well in terms of movies um of course it's well known um that in i think it's 57 
uh, Broccoli was supposed to have a meeting with uh, Irving Allen. I, I'm sorry, with, uh, with Ian Fleming. And, but Broccoli was tending to his uh, ill wife who would later shortly pass away, I guess. And so Irving Allen goes in his place. And Irving Allen, though, one, Irving Allen was a bit on the bombastic side, kind of like Saltzman would be uh, later, which kind of lends, you know, you know, quick as a side. So was there like something in Broccoli's uh, psychological makeup where he like, hook, you know, partnering with bombastic guys? I, I don't yeah. know. But, you know, it's like, you know, you could... <laughs> An academic could probably do a, a self paper abuse about it. or something like that, <laughs> something or, like, or just yeah. or mixing and matching of personalities, yeah. whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, Alan insults Fleming at that at that fifty seven meeting. You know, says, "Oh, these books are terrible. They're not even good enough for TV." And like, well, that meeting didn't go well. Yeah. And like, you know, that was one of the factors leading to the breakup of the Alan Broccoli team. Well, anyway, you know some years go by and it's like, Oh, bonds, a big thing. So like, well, well, what am I going to do? So he gets the rights to the Matt Helm novels, which were, which debuted in 1960, which were very serious. And Matt Helm, the novels were kind of like a combination of Ian Fleming and Mickey Spillane. You've got the first person narrative. You, the reader is is seeing things through Helm's eyes. It's all that way, and and I like him a lot. But and what they but what the author's name is Donald Hamilton. What he would do is you've got in some cases you know as fantastic as anything Fleming did, but he's you know but you get sucked into it through that personal prism, and like you're sucked all the way through the story. And there was I remember one time I was rereading one for the umpteenth time and suddenly like in the middle of it suddenly it hit me it's like helm is like having a machete fight with an ex-nazi there's a stolen rocket in the background <laughs> it's like it's going to be launched like this is pretty fantastic but uh you know that's what they were like anyway yeah. so so irving allen gets the rights to those and but what are you going to do and somehow some way dean martin emerges as oh, as right. the person to play it but but to get dean martin you had you had to make him a partner so there were four movies the silencers murderers row the ambushers and the wrecking crew and if you saw once upon a time in hollywood speaking of a nostalgic movie you saw quite a bit of the wrecking crew because sharon tate's in it it was <laughs> one of her last movies and and Margot Robbie's playing Sharon, Sharon Tate. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a scene in the movie where Sharon Tate goes to a theater that's playing the Wrecking Crew. She's going to watch herself. Um, and in the, but you, so way it is in the movie, you have Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, but, but they are showing the actual Wrecking Crew film mm -hmm. up on the screen. That's really Sharon Tate you're watching in the movie within the movie. Right. Um, but so anyway, Dean Martin had to be a partner. If you look at the copyright notices, now you're saying, who reads copyright notices? Actually, I do. Uh, be, well, because it's one way of actually sort of establishing the ownership. Um, I, I pick up little details that way. It's, you know, it's, it's anyhow, anyhow um, it says Meadway hyphen Claude. Meadway is M-E-A-D-W-A-Y. Uh, Claude, you know, Claude, 
Meadway was Irving Allen's company. Claude was Dean Martin's company. So mm -hmm. they say like Meadway, Claude, number one, number two, et cetera. Um, so Dean Martin ended up getting compensated more for the silencers than Sean Connery got paid for Thunderball. But, you know, Dean Martin, he made it all on the back end um, is where he got the big money because um, he's getting percentage of, I think it might have been the gross. Um, anyway, so he's like making over a million dollars for the silencers, which did fine, was solid, but was not anywhere close to Thunderball's, you know, global box office. Um, needless to say, Sean Connery got wind of this and was not happy. And so when you read about, you know, Sean Connery was agitating to be a partner in the Bond series, that was a big reason why. It's like, he's a partner. Look what he's getting. Like, yeah. I want some of that. It's like, <laughs> you're doing a whole lot more money because of me. Um, of course, Albert R. Broccoli, he's already got one partner he's really rather not have. <laughs> he wasn't going to, yeah. he did not want to have a second. So, so that didn't happen. But, uh, and I would actually argue, you know, and for that reason, I actually argue that the Matt Helm movies probably had the biggest impact on the Bond series. Not that it stole Bond's audience or anything mm -hmm. like that, but, but I think it, it, there were already tension in the Bond franchise and I think it worsened it. Uh, and, and, and also it did run four movies, which a lot of them didn't. Another one um, you made mention briefly was uh, the Flint movies, James mm -hmm. Coburn is yes. Flint. We have and to was, talk about those. I love were, those. They, they, they are just, they are great. They are great. As I watch them, you know, as an adult looking back, it does strike me though, that they're kind of like, their budget looked like maybe a, you know, better than a TV show, but maybe not that much. Um, right. Because there's one where um, uh, James Coburn, he's getting away and he does this karate blow thing. He's like supposedly, cutting these power lines like that and you hear this the short circuit sound effect it's the same short circuit sound effect you could hear on voyage to the bottom sea you know be, the flint movies were made at 20th century fox so they're obviously using the same, same sound, sound effects yeah. yeah you know um but but the, the but there are two things i think that that do elevate those those films one is james Coburn. he's just fantastic yes, he's yes. just great was that is, was that after um um the Magnificent Seven was that? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Magnificent Seven was sixty. Um, this was, I think, they made it in sixty-five, and it was, it copyright notice. Uh, it has a sixty-five copyright notice, but I think it was actually released in sixty-six. Hmm. And then okay. the second movie was sixty-seven. Um, but anyway, he is great because it, and that's harkening back to that McCallum remark about you have to take it seriously. It's like it's a joke, but you don't get the impression that he's making fun of it. He is no. like playing Derek Flint. And it's like, and one of the favorite scenes is in the first movie. Um, for those who haven't seen it, Derek Flint was once an intelligence agency and he's off practically, he practically has a harem. He's living with four women. Yeah. And, and um, there's these band of Nazi, uh, not, I almost said Nazi, criminal scientists. Mm -hmm. They found a way to control the weather. And it's like, um, they, um, our computers will determine who is the best person to go after this. And they, all the computers come back Flint, and a lot of these guys are going to Lee J Cobb who's like the, 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 uh, boss guy, yeah. Flint, 
flute. And he's going, oh, you're, you're wrong. I, I worked with this man. He's, he's not proper. And they keep, you know, they keep throwing these computer cards at him, let's say Flint. And it's like, uh, and then, and then the phone goes off and has this unique ringtone, which um, actually decades later, that, what's his name? Mike Myers ended up using yes. in the nineties. Yes. It's the same one, the big red phone, the hotline from the president. Like the there was so much like everybody says oh you know that's all that stuff is from the spiral love me and you only live twice uh the mike myers films but i see so much flint movie in there and i gotta tell you i love it because also it was one of the first time you see that you know flint is reluctant you know to get right. back into the action and he has to be kind of coerced and convinced he's living and, with four women and you know right <laughs> why is he gonna go mess that up but i mean yeah. it, that was before it became de rigor for bond to have to be pulled back into things right and right i i tell you if you haven't seen those films you've got to check them out and bill do you know why they only made two were they not successful they were successful and they i they announced a third I do know they announced it there, but for whatever reason, they didn't make it. It might be, uh, it could be that James Coburn was like, yeah, this is, this is enough yeah. because he made another satiric kind of spy movie called the president's Anal Anal analyst, the president's an analyst. I, he's like this psychiatrist for the president. So this put, but anyway, this puts him in, this puts him in danger because, oh, if he's like, if he's the president's shrink, he knows things, we must get him. I think that's the, the premise of the film. Um, anyway, but they did announce a third, it, it, but it was never made. And also Matt, just real quick on Matt Helm, they announced the fifth and, uh, hmm. and Dean Martin wanted to have Sharon Tate come back. She gets murdered. They, there was some pre-production made, but Dean's heart wasn't in it. And so, and that's, you know, and just real quick on what Broccoli felt. Broccoli eventually was proven right. Because um, if you make your leading man the partner, once your leading man, once your star doesn't want to do it anymore, you're sunk. Uh, it's 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 really hard to like you know recast uh, yeah. in that situation. But anyway, but yes, um, there was a third third Flint film announced. It, it, in fact, it, it's coming. I I saw this story just yesterday as we recorded this. So Learjets is has run the course yeah. it's, and and um flint liked to go around in learjet and and so like bill lear the founder of learjets is in in like flint as a you know as himself he's like hey, i got your new plane and it's like oh great you know flint's got his new plane um oh the reason flint agrees to come back is because galaxy that's the that's the villainous organization mm -hmm. is um it, you know tried to kill him oh, uh, if they're going to try and kill him, I guess I got to go after him. Yeah. So, and there's this great scene where he's like, okay, he's back in the fold. And, um, and, and Lee J. Cobb's got this briefcase. This has 43 devices, whatever it is. And then Flint pulls out his cigarette lighter, says, this device is 82. And they flicks it. He says, 83, if you wish to light a cigarette, <laughs> which is like one of the greatest lines. And, he's, and he says it so well. Oh, I said there were two things elevated. The second thing is Jerry Goldsmith doing the music. Fantastic. I, I've got a mm. CD. I've got a CD of the, of the two scores of the two films. And, um, oh, I forgot, forgot to mention that um, the organization that Lee J. Cobb is the, uh, 
head of is the Zonal Organization for World Intelligence and Espionage, or Zowie. And yes. uh, that, that's the other thing, the influence of Uncle was that you, doing you know things as acronyms <laughs> yes and, and um and by the way i think a lot of even younger people watching this would recognize the theme because yes. you've heard the theme in so many other things and you're like oh that's a really cool theme like na, 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 na. it's you would recognize it but you didn't know it was from that movie right and and in the second movie in like flint um they brought aboard leslie brickus who of course had written you have know, been doing lyrics for goldfinger and you only live twice and and mr kiss kiss bang bang um so he he worked with goldsmith on a theme or on a song uh, called Your Zowie Face. And uh, so in the, in the main titles, it's an in instrumental, but in the end titles, you know, you, you hear the song, yes, there are lyrics to Your Zowie Face. Um, do you think, do you think, cause I, I do want to explore this and I think you've got the answer better than anyone. You know, when you think about the saint and the persuaders and then ergo roger moore for live and let die and you think of diana riggs and you think of the avengers ergo honor majesty's secret service do you think that the powers that be for the bond franchise were trying to capture the tv audience so there'd be an automatic foundation there or just they're good actors we want them involved well um you know, the Avengers was a kind of like triple A baseball team <laughs> for the Bond series. I mean, you stop and think about it because, you know, uh, uh, Honor Blackman, then Diana Rigg, and eventually Patrick McNee. Yeah. Uh, with Joanna Lumley, it went the other way. She was one of the Angels of Death and Honor mm. Majesty's Secret Service. And there was a revival of the Avengers in the 70s where she was the female lead oh. uh, called the New Avengers. Um, didn't even know that. Well, it, it didn't get a lot of visibility here in the here in the states. It was mm. you know on in England, circa seventy six, I think. But it, it wasn't shown here in the U.S. until seventy nine, and it was on CBS, but not in prime time. It was on uh, as part of the CBS Late Movie on Friday nights, and uh, yeah, and it's like, well, this is great. I, I didn't know about. I didn't know this existed. Um, so I watched. That's when I watched it. Uh, was was you know as part of that um so anyway so yeah i mean clint well also with the uh the event the avengers was sort of a natural i mean it's made in england and yeah. um you know i mean it's not just those lead actors you know there's a lot of the character actors i, I forget the guy's name he played vargas on thunderball i mean he's in the avengers and at least some episodes and uh oh what's his name julian glover is in the saint a lot uh lois maxwell's in the saint oh, that's uh, right. uh, yes. because in that in the summer of 79 um i i'm sure cbs did this because moonraker was coming out they were showing they were showing the saint uh as part of the cbs late movies and it's like i turned it on one night and there's roger moore talking to lois maxwell oh like, but they're really young yeah it just didn't make yeah, sense yeah 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 <laughs> um i so, saw that footage i did but yeah a lot of a lot of characters and crew people um there was a director of photography and i can't remember his name he was like in the 80s oh, man. i'm i'm drawing a blank uh but the guy who was the director of photography for like for your eyes only and octopussy uh did he do and i think of you to a kill as well he 
worked on the Avengers as you know, mm. director of photography. Um, so yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, natural. John Glenn uh, was a film editor on Danger Man, um, which in the U.S. was shown as Secret Agent. Hmm. forgot about that i mean well there's so many i'm, I'm I, you know what what's going to happen in the comments people are going to say what about this what about that it's like course, sorry guys there's a whole lot to remember that's why there. there'll be a part two don't worry yeah. <laughs> but, um, so so bill speaking of comments at the risk of you know you, you have a couple of years on me but not many um at the at the risk of you and i sounding like those curmudgeon -y guys like you know get off my lawn you damn kids um do you think I often think about this. Do you think TV shows today have lost some of that potential to be those nostalgic, you know, lovins like we're having now? Because to me, when you think of uh, spy genre or intrigue, it's either very serious or you've got comedy shows. You don't really right, have yeah. kind of the mix of what I call that fun. blend. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And and with the spy craze, I, I say this over and over. It's like that's like catching lightning in a bottle. That's like catching lightning in a bottle. It really was uh, at the risk of sounding like yeah, they don't make them like they used to. Um, <laughs> I, I really do think there is something missing because you're either like really dark or you're like really light, and, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Um, it's just yeah be because well here's an example so like the one mm -hmm. with the wild wild west you know it was on for four years and and it was ratings were still good but it got canceled because there was a lot of concern about violence on tv it had a lot of action i would argue that's kind of comic book kind of action but right. uh, but anyway it, 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 got, it got a reputation as being a violent show so cbs threw it overboard essentially so 10 years after it was canceled they had you know, the Wild Wild West revisited. It was a, it was a TV movie. It brought back the original leads, Robert Conrad and Ross Martin. And while there's some entertaining scenes, it was just way, way too light. Because, again, going back to the idea, it's like doesn't matter how preposterous it is, you have to act like you believe it. And there's there was just too much, too lightheartedness in the wild wild west revisit it was too much of a comedy and and they did another one called more a year later called more wild wild west it's even worse in that regard oh. and and I, I i finally bought them just to you know because i had all this i had all the series so i was like well i'll get them but <laughs> um but that's it shows even when you have like the original actors it's really hard to duplicate yeah um in 83 there was the uh the return of the man from uncle tv movie and mm -hmm. it's better than the wild wild west revisited but you know there's still some you know it's just there's just something kind of off about it yes. because you because you spend like half you spend like the better part of an hour you like just getting uh soul and Ilya back together and they're back together for a few scenes and then they separate you know work, work different ends of the case and so when they when they are together, I mean, both Vaughn and McCallum were just fine in that. And then they went, I would say they went too far. I mean, because of course you have George Lazenby as JB and he's driving and Aston Martin, <laughs> DB5. And for trivia, um, I checked with someone associated with that production. 
So I said, when did, when did Lazenby film his scenes? And I got back an answer. It was, he arrived in Las Vegas on December 1st, 1982. He filmed his scenes on the second and third. You know, it's a small role. So, you know, that's all they needed him for. So Roger Moore was filming octopusy scenes at that same time, apparently with Louis Jordan. What I don't know is, was Connery filming scenes for Never Say Never Again? Probably, you know, because Ooh. Connery's in most, you know, yeah. so much of the movie. So there's probably a pretty good chance that all three of them, the first three film bonds were working the same days. Oh my gosh. Can you <laughs> I'll imagine? be in different time zones. But, um, but I don't know for sure. I asked around yeah. and, and if anybody knows, they're not, they're, they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not, not getting back it. with me. Yeah. You know? What? So, all right, here we go. This is a big modern question. Why is it that if you have this nostalgic egg that you can feed off of, why do they, when they modernize these things, you know, the, the Avengers movie, um, oh my gosh, oh. just, just start naming them, even get smart, get smart. They, yeah. you know, they modernized it. Um, wow, wow, West with Will Smith. Yeah. Why do they get it so wrong if they have this nostalgic egg to feed off of? I think part of it is people want to say they want it to be theirs and not just somebody else's. Get Smart's a case. I thought the casting was pretty solid. But for one thing, they insist on doing like origin stories. And it's like, and with Get Smart, that is like the most unnecessary thing. You know, Maxwell Smart, you don't explain Maxwell Smart. Maxwell Smart just is. He's mm -hmm. like a force of nature. It's like, yeah, you can explain why the wind works, but you know, all you need to know is that the wind blows. Yes. And so, and so like Maxwell Smart, so like, and they came up with, I, it's like, what was it? If I remember right, Maxwell Smart used to be overweight. He had like, you know, self inferiority complex or mm -hmm. something. And then he lost a lot of weight and then he became an agent. It's like, no, then all that time spent like, no, just, just cut to the chase. Just get right. Maxwell smart, stumbling and bumbling and getting his guy. That's, that's all you need. And, and if you look at those sixties shows uh, and, and, and it's true for, for bond as well, it's like, they don't spend time explaining how they got to be, how they are. Yeah. They are, you know, bond is like a top agent. There's a line in Dr. No, he says he's had the Beretta for 10 years. So he's like, yeah, he's, he's been an intelligence agent for about a decade. And like, you know, the man from uncle, it's like, they don't explain how, what he, you know, he's just, he's top agent. You know, yeah. let's like, let's just go, let's go to it. And that was 50% of the movie was them kind of getting together. So to speak. Yeah. And, 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 and um, even Batman, um, you know, Grant, Adam West Batman, now it was um, intended as a comedy, obviously, but right. it's like Batman's, you know, Batman's established, you know, the hotline's installed, you know, and, and, you know, he's, it's, you know, the Riddler was in the pilot and it's established, you know, you know, Commissioner Gordon or somebody says, he's your arch nemesis. You know, it's like, you, we know they've tangled before and it's like, Riddler's bad news. That's, you know, let's just go. And that's, and that's what those 60 shows did. They, they were fully formed people. Yeah. And, and even, I was about to give a non-spot, but I won't go there. It's just, uh, <laughs> by the way, speaking of Batman, you and I had a great conversation just on the phone, not doing this uh, recently about the bad gadgets and how much yes. we love the bad gadgets. And you were actually like, yeah, but the best one was in the, in the Batman movie. Do you remember the four uh, bat sprays that he had 
repellent. There was shark repellent bat spray because that's the one he needed. He had whale repellent. He had barracuda repellent. Yes. And he had manta ray repellent. That's right. And yeah, and it was in a, like a tra or tray or display and it said yeah. oceanic repellent sprays. <laughs> you know, just in case. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be prepared. And, I love know. that show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and by the way, speaking of nostalgia, my brother, who's a very accomplished dentist, ergo professional, um, loves Batman so much. His collection of Batman stuff rivals my James Bond oh, collection. Okay. And could, because we, again, that was another thing. We would come home from school and, you know, Batman, you know, was always in our uh, rotation, you know, and then oh, if, yeah, if, yeah. if you were lucky enough, if you were lucky enough, Bill, and you remember this, you know, you saw Batgirl drive on the front of the beginning. You're like, it's a Batgirl right, right. episode. It's a Batgirl episode. Yeah. It's all good. Third season. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I saw that pilot first run on, oh, wow. on, on, on ABC. And um, it, you know, when Jill St. John fell into the atomic reactor, holy crap. Like, yes. I, I, I was seven. I was, you know, that was like the right age to see Batman and view it as adventure. Because by the time you're nine, you're starting to like look. You're starting starting to look a little creaky to you. Because I remember a, a conversation with a late friend of mine. He was two years old, older than I am, and he said, "Oh, I hated Batman." I said, "How could you hate Batman?" And like, but you know, he like said he was just viewing it from just that that little bit older kind of ruined it. I mean, in um, oh. Uh, what the hell I'll, I'll tell the story so in 1986 at that point adam west and burt ward would go to like car shows and things in costume and this was in in, in indianapolis yeah yeah warner brothers you know that was before warner brothers went into pre-production on on the 89 batman movie and it's like once that happens like yeah, guys you can't wear those can't wear that. that that's that's intellectual property um but then they were, and then they could. And um, I was on the business news desk and I went to the theater. I said, listen, I, you know, cause it was gonna be on a Saturday. I said, listen, um, I'm not gonna put in for overtime. I'm not gonna put in for any pay, but you gotta let me go and do a story about, about these guys. And, <laughs> and, um, and they did. And so I went, mm. I made the rookie mistake. I should have like tried to get in before they went out because I got there. They said, well, they're going to have a break. You can talk to them during the break. But then it was the break. Oh, they're so exhausted. You'll have to wait till the end. Like, oh, it's oh. like the deadline's going like, uh. um, but anyway, I did get in to see them after they, uh, after they were done. And um, I was, I was interviewing them. I was mostly interviewing Adam West, but I told him the story. And it's like, we were mentioning about the, oceanic repellent sprays that's from the 66 feature film mm -hmm. and um i told him about how in that of course in that movie also had the thing where he's trying to get rid of the bomb the big yes. black thing with the sparkly yes. fuse <laughs> and and i was telling him how you know my family went to see it in a drive-in and at the you know when he said you know some days you can't get rid of a bomb my dad laughed i was mad I was mad. I'm like, how can you like laugh at this? It's like he's trying to get rid of the bomb. Um, <laughs> anyway, he Adam West thought that was very funny. 
yeah. and he said, he said, you know what? He said, and that's what was good about the show. It could appeal to a kid and it could appeal to an adult. Yeah. And, and he was right. So it's so funny too because i remember distinctly growing up with that show i had the mego dolls remember the you know the oh yeah the kind of six and a half inch dolls with like real clothes and my brother always would get the mego batman and i would always get the robin and we would pretend he would always be batman i would always be robin and we were totally fine with it but that showed to me when i was growing up was not a comedy and it wasn't campy it was dead serious and then when there were cliffhangers i was oh, yeah. like nervous i was like <laughs> yeah. Like, I think this is going to be it, you know, as a small mind, but then of course, right. now it can mean so many different things. And, and you had to wait a whole 23 and a half hours to see how it turned out. I know. It <laughs> it's like, us. it seemed like an eternity. So Bill, um, here, here's here's the power of nostalgia. We've been talking for over an hour and, and this mm -hmm. is great because I really wanted to kind of kick this off with kind of the essence of, you know, the power of nostalgia and how all these things start to come together. Um, so we're going to we're going to branch this off into, I think, uh, a multiple series of these because I think it's just so strong. And there's so many stories. But thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I hope you could flex your nostalgic muscles here today. Well, I can can I just show you a couple things real quick. Something yes. else that expanded uh, on these you know TV shows was they would do tie in novels and these would be original novels. And um, uh, and and the man from uncle they published like 23 of these and they published them in the in the us and the uk but like the us but they had different covers and different numbering for some reason so this is like both the number four for the us and number four for the uk and you, they've got different titles and different oh, covers wow. different cover style and then also just very quick and of course, this spilled into comic books too. You had to have, you know, spies and comic books. And so, my favorite was Nick Fury, Agent of Shield. Oh, um, nice! And that um, it was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, but there was a guy named Jim Steranko who uh, he really made it his own. Steranko was like a his, his star shone brightly, but only for a short time. He was kind of in and out within two or three years, but he did what seemed at the time like mind-bending work so so were you uh, nauseous when they came out with the david hasselhoff nick fury agent of shields not too bad not really i mean it was, it, i i kind of gave them like a for effort sort of thing okay. not not my choice but there were some elements of it that were like okay i mean I've seen worse. I mean, there was, <laughs> I mean, there was like this one version of Captain America in the yes. 70s that was it was the Roger Corman version of, of yeah, Captain yeah. America. Yeah. So so by that comparison, you're like, you know, David Hasselhoff was fine, but yeah. uh, not not great, but you know, it, it, at least not nauseous. <laughs> yeah, that was the one where Captain America was wearing a motorcycle helmet. He put a shield on the front of a motorcycle. Oh. Yeah. 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 And, eh, whatever. It was painful. It was beautiful. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back and do this again because there's so okay. much more to talk about. I mean, there's uh, there's decades and decades of of this type of conversation. But Bill, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. It goes quick, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you talk about nostalgia. Yeah. And this has been David Zaritsky for The Bond Experience. We'll see you all real soon. Take care. Thanks for watching this episode. If you want to be up on the latest from the Bond experience, just click on this subscribe and subscribe to our channel. You're gonna get all the latest and greatest information plus some exclusive content. And by the way, speaking of content, here's something especially for you just because we know you.
Talk to you soon.